This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Putting It Together, the podcast that goes through the entire body of work of Stephen Sondheim, show by show and song by song. My name is Kyle Marshall, your self-described Sondheim expert. Welcome to the season on Follies. This, as you will probably know if you're a Sondheim fan, is a beast of a show. So depending on how you want to count, there are 21 songs in this musical, uh, plus four additional songs that Sondheim wrote when the London version was produced in 1987. So we're going to be with this show for a while. And normally in this intro, I'll be making sure to bring in some audio clips and provide context. However, for now, let me address three things. Number one, uh, if you listened to the season finale of Company, you will have heard me say that there was a Google survey that you could fill out to provide me with some feedback. Well, uh, I forgot to put the Google survey into that episode. And then at a certain point, I was like, it's kind of too late to, to add it in now. So I apologize for that, but I do still appreciate feedback. So if you want, you can send that to puttingittogetherpodcast at gmail.com. You can let me know things that you like or even things that you think that would make this show better. Number two, in my off time, I added two new Patreon supporters. So thank you to Mike Janice and Mike Conroy. Mike and Mike, you should start a candy company. You can also help support the show by going to patreon.com slash putting it together podcast. Believe me, I appreciate every single person who is able to help support during COVID-19, but please do not feel compelled to donate if it is in any way hurting you financially. Just remember it's Mike and Ike, not Mike and Mike. My joke doesn't even work. Kyle, you're a, you're a disgrace. Finally, number three. This season, we're looking at three different productions of Follies, most of which are available on streaming platforms or available to purchase digitally. So we'll be using the original Broadway cast, the 1987 London version, and then the 2017 National Theatre version. I definitely suggest listening to all three just to understand the differences that can happen in this show. All right, now it's time for Plotting Along. Plotting Along is the part of the show where I describe to you what's happening in the plot. So the year is 1971. And we're on the soon-to-be-demolished stage of the Wiseman Theater. Wiseman himself enters and welcomes the returning chorus girls who have performed there over the years. Both the present-day women and men mingle, as well as their ghosts from their younger years. Sally Durant is the first of our main characters to arrive, perhaps a bit frumpy and talking a mile a minute. Next is Phyllis Stone, a regal and elegant woman. Her husband Ben is also there. He's rich and important. Sally loved him in her younger days and is nervous to meet him again. Then Buddy enters. He's Sally's husband, and you can tell he's a salesman. But you can also tell that underneath his smiles is a bitter disappointment. Wiseman enters again to introduce Roscoe, the old master of ceremonies. Roscoe's job is to introduce the former girls. And so he does. My guest today is William C. White. Uh, He's been on before, if you've been listening for the last few seasons, and he brings with him a deep knowledge of Sondheim and musical theory. 
If you don't know, he's based out of Seattle, Washington, and is currently the music director of Orchestra Seattle and the Seattle Chamber Singers. I'm always so happy to have him on. He brings with him a perspective and an outlook that I always welcome, especially from conductors, because they're able to parse the language of music that I sometimes struggle with. We'll be talking about the prologue, which serves as an overture of sorts, as well as the song Beautiful Girls. So I'm going to go thank some sponsors, and then after that, it'll be my conversation with William C. White. Putting it together is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. So this week, we are sponsored by Pod Power a couple of times over. So I want to let you know that with Pod Power, ATB is making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, we're giving a Pod Power shout out to the Alberta Queer Calendar Project. The Alberta Queer Calendar Project features monthly podcast dramas by queer Albertan writers throughout 2020. Podcasts are released monthly and are free to access anywhere you get podcasts. Listen and learn more about the Alberta Queer Calendar presented by Cardiac Theatre in partnership with What It Is Productions at queercalendar.ca. But how would also Your Forest? Your Forest is a podcast about the natural world. Hear stories about the environment, renewable resources, conservation, forestry, hunting, fishing, and more. This is a podcast for those who cannot live without the joys and wonders of all wild things. Find Your Forest wherever you get your podcasts or at yourforestpodcast.com. That's yourforestpodcast.com. William White, thank you so much for joining me here again. Oh, Kyle, it's a pleasure as always. You know, I want to jump right into it because you've been here uh, a few times before. Uh, some people say too much, but I say that they're wrong. The How dare they? How dare they? Tell me about Follies. Where did you fall into Follies for the first time? Gosh, um, oh, can I really remember that? I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, of course, you know, a lot of the songs from Follies, because it is just like such a splendid songbook in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the songs make their way around. I mean, like, it's so easy to just in the course of things, get familiar with something like Broadway Baby, or I'm Still Here, or some of the pastiche numbers. Um, so I couldn't tell you the first time that I heard one of those. Um, I definitely remember when I was in grad school, um, I took a class on musical theater. And it's probably would come as no surprise to say that Follies was one of the main case studies that we that we looked into in real depth i mean both because the show itself concerns the history of broadway musical theater and sort of how styles emerged and submerged and also because you know there are a lot of people who would consider it the greatest show of all time um you know i mean i think if you talk to real broadway ophiles and you say you know what's the one show in broadway history that you wish you could have seen in the flesh, I think a lot of people will tell you that it's the original production of Follies. So we dug into the research about it, looked at the um, source materials, 
looked at the uh, kind of original correspondence between the authors and how they put it together. So that's that's when I really mm-hmm. did a deep dive into Follies. You know, it is one of those classically underappreciated in their time because as if people don't know, like this was kind of panned by most critics at the time. And it really wasn't until like 15, 20 years later where people really came around to it, I don't think. Uh, at least critically, I think there was definitely fans. It ran for quite a while. Although, uh, Sonny writes in his book here too that even though it ran for quite a while, it didn't make its money back. So it's looked at as like this failure, except it's still in the popular culture so much for people who love musical theater. Yeah, I think that one of the problems in terms of it's making its money back is just that it was so expensive. I mean, yeah. I think this this was one of the most expensive shows on Broadway, but Hal Prince always talks about the fact that Yes, this is one of the most expensive shows, but it's maybe the only show where you could see every penny on the stage and there was no other way to do it. You know, there was no other way to do it except for expensive. It had to look totally lavish. You know, it just it just had to be that recreation of your image of the past. And that's an expensive thing to put on. Now, I know because you're a composer, I like hearing your uh, thoughts on this. I want to really tie this back to company for a moment which is uh, even though this like they were starting to work on this before company was even a thought (laughs) to do it still came out after but do you see there being a huge difference in musicality and craftsmanship that Sondheim had from company to follies one year later no I mean you know this this score leans more heavily on some of Sondheim's other skills that he couldn't really develop in company and and of course what I'm talking about is his ability to pastiche um, his ability to sort of uh, evoke the sense of other songwriters and other eras and you know I mean Sondheim says that he's he's a chameleon as a composer which in a way he is I think that there's always some you know there's kind of a backbone that goes throughout all of his work you know, in company, you have the the one like real pastiche kind of number is what would we do without you? Mm-hmm. You know, that has that sort of slightly zany vaudeville quality to it. And and I guess the um, you could drive a person crazy has a little bit of that Andrew sisters character yeah, to it. Yeah. But other than that, I, I can't really think of too much pastiche. Now, I as I was thinking about this opening and thinking about the music that influenced it and, you know, the, these kind of slow waltzes that Sondheim loved so much that he got from like 1920s Paris, you know, there are those in company. Like Barcelona is that, Someone is Waiting is that, Poor Baby is that. Um, so, you know, there there is some crossover, I think, in the sound of like the modern songs in Follies and, and the score to company. I don't think that they're so far apart hmm. to pull the the curtain back here a little bit for people that are listening uh you sent me a bunch of songs here this morning with links to kind of show some of the influences that you feel like sondheim was using for the orchestrations of this so i don't know if you want to run some of those down or kind of point out some of the stuff that you uh, felt were his inspirations yeah i mean most of those those links that i sent you pertain to the open of the piece, the sort of prelude or overture, if you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that is a what the French might call a valse lente, a slow waltz. And Sondheim just ate those up. Oh my gosh, he just loves himself a slow waltz. They come up over and over again. I mean, if you think about the, the opening of The Miller's Son, that's, that's right. a great example of that. Now, I think it's 
no secret to anyone that Sondheim is hugely influenced by Maurice Ravel, the French composer of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, you know, if you if you read interviews with Sondheim, he will list Ravel as his main compositional influence over and over again. But there are some other composers around that Ravelian orbit whose music, I think, really has gone into the meat grinder of Sondheim's musical mind. The main one that I would mention is um, Eric Satie, uh, who is the composer of the very famous Gemnopédie. That is a slow waltz where the third beat is left off and it has this beautiful sort of ethereal melody going over it. And I think that that is something you really get in this opening number of Follies in, in the overture. Uh, you can hear it in the, it's the soprano saxophone, I believe, plays the, the melody. And so it captures that mood. And I think for Sondheim, like, you know, if, if, if Buddy and Sally and Ben and Phyllis all have their ghosts on stage, I think that Sondheim's ghost lurking in the wings always is Maurice Ravel. You're going to start your TED talk here pretty soon. Well, yeah, I know it's so true. But, um, but anyway, so uh, yeah, the Gemnopédie of Satie, um, the second movement of Ravel's piano concerto. I think is, is, well, I think that that's a piece that Sondheim like wrote his, you know, undergraduate thesis on. And so he knew it very, very well. It's in a slow waltz tempo for the majority. And then uh, Claude Debussy, the uh, Danse Profane from the uh, Danse Sacrée Profane um, for harp and strings. It's another beautiful slow waltz. Yeah, that Debussy one specifically for me, after listening to that Debussy one, I can almost see like a straight line of inspiration from there into this opening prologue of Follies. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's it's so funny that, I mean, in this show, which is really all about like, you know, the Broadway greats, it's these turn of the century Parisians that Sondheim draws so much influence from. Yeah, I, want, I, I wonder what it is, because even from like the opening chords like you have like that little drum fill right and then it's like like it's like that really huge 
eventful opening, there feels like there's we're we're being introduced to whether it's an opera or or something big, like something momentous is happening right here. Like it's not like a slow lead up. It's like bam in your face. We're about to do it. And I don't know if that's maybe partly due to how this originally was supposed to be a murder mystery and it's supposed to have this like you know threat or that feeling of danger right from the very beginning. But uh, I don't know. For, for whatever it is, it's effective for me right from the very beginning. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight there because I agree. Those first two chords do have a, a real weight and import. And in a way, they have that sound of like a 1940s film score, which is, of course, another huge influence on Sondheim. You know, I, this is the first time that I'm having a, an opportunity to talk about Sondheim's great collaborator, Jonathan Tunick, mm-hmm. who, I mean, it, it's just, it, to me, it's one of the greatest miracles of music history that those two found each other um, because Tunick is a total master of his craft. And, you know, I mean, if he had just, if there had been no Sondheim on Broadway, he would not have been able to, I think, rise to the levels of mastery that he has been able to in, in interpreting Sondheim's work. Um, and they met on company though, right? Yeah. That's the first time they worked together. I, I don't yeah. really know how they like actually met. Um, mm-hmm. That would be an interesting story to try to, figure out but uh yeah company was their first collaboration and then and follies this, is the second one yeah uh, maybe to I, I don't know if we've ever actually fully discussed this but maybe you can describe a little bit like jonathan tunick is the orchestrator what would he be doing like what would his job actually be doing taking uh the the music that sondheim has written and then what does he actually do to to make that what we hear right so sondheim writes you know at the piano and mm. he writes basically a score that is written on two, you know, basically that that could be played or approximated by a pianist. I mean, Sondheim's music tends to be very complicated. And so um, to say that the way that what what he writes could be played exactly as written by a pianist is not exactly right. He writes more than a pianist could play, but he writes it on the piano double staff. Mm -hmm. So what's what, what Tunic or what an orchestrator has to do is come in and, I mean, at the most basic level, just assign the notes that Sondheim has written at the piano to the members of the orchestra to play. You know, so I mean, like if Sondheim writes a chord and it has, you know, 10 notes in it, you know, which he could play with all 10 fingers, well, you know, one trumpet can't play all 10 notes, right? So I mean, like one trumpet has to play one of the notes, the violin has to play the other. It's a real art and a science because, you know, if you have, say, like, three trumpets in your pit and you have four violins and you have all the trumpets playing one note and you have all the violins playing like, you know, five notes, like you're not going to hear the violin notes, right? Right. Because the trumpets are going to be, they're going to overbalance the strings. So there is a science in there of assigning the notes in such a way that everything is clear and that it all blends together. And then there's the additional challenge, I guess, in that, you know, a piano has a certain sound, it has a certain resonance. You know, if you if you push down the pedal on the piano, I'll, the, the whole thing is going to ring. So a piano has a real ring to it, but it also has a decay. You know, as soon as you hit a note, it immediately, like, that's the loudest it's going to be, and then it goes away. So those two things give the piano a very specific sound. And an orchestrator has to translate that somehow into the orchestra. So whereas, you know, Sondheim might not write, say, uh, a long sustained note, 
when he plays it on the piano, it might sort of, you know, that echo of that note might just keep going. Well, the orchestrator might give that note to an oboe so that, that it's, it's sounding through, so that there's a sustained quality in the orchestra. It's a bit of a mystery as well. I mean, in addition, you know, I say it's like a science, like it's clinical, but it's also a mystery, like exactly how you do this. Like the great composers of the past, you know, Beethoven, Brahms, Shostakovich, uh, Ravel, they all wrote for the orchestra directly, or they orchestrated their own music. And on Broadway, that's just not done. Even somebody like Leonard Bernstein, who was, of course, you know, a great master of the orchestra, he did not orchestrate his own music. And that a lot of the time just has to do with the exigencies of how a show is put on. You know, I mean, if the, if the songwriter is writing a last minute replacement song that has to go into rehearsal that night and go up on stage, you know, by the weekend, like that composer doesn't have the time, even if they are, you know, know how to orchestrate, which most of them don't, including Sondheim, they don't have the time to do the orchestration themselves. So, you know, th- some of that work has to be split up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a little bit about orchestration. I mean, I think this is why in every single Tony uh, award-winning speech, that's not, like every Tony award that Sondheim won, his very first sentence is usually, there should be a Tony award for best orchestrator. Until I think they finally did uh, have a best orchestration. Yeah, they, they do have one now. I mean, I can't remember when that was instated, but you know, God yeah. bless Sondheim for, for really pointing that out. And it's like, you know, if you're into especially original cast recordings, then a lot of what you think of as the sound of Sondheim is the sound of Jonathan Tunick. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's just, you know, you have to think of it as, if, if you're thinking of the orchestral work, you have to think of it as, as a Sondheim tunic work. Yeah, there, there, there's a book for you researchers out there. Do like tunic and Sondheim, have a, an entire book on how that whole relationship worked. That'd be great. Yes. Oh my gosh, I would read that in a second. <laughs> now, this is what I wrote down while I was listening to this prologue. Tell me what you think about this or if I get anything wrong. I will say, and I'll point this out, that the prologue only shows up on two of the albums that we're talking about, the original Broadway cast and the 2017 National Theatre version. They don't include it on the 1987 London version for whatever reason. I don't know why. But to me, it's like we have those those opening right notes, a little bit like risque, unsavory is what I wrote down here. But then I feel like it gets this more lyrical quality to it. This is the part where I feel like I can imagine Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers like having a dance routine to it. It gets like this very lovely melodic line. And then it kind of goes right down to just like a harp. And I think it's an oboe, maybe a clarinet. I'm not actually sure. But it's this, those two instruments and then strings and then brass. And then the drums kind of come back in again to kind of fill out the entire orchestra. It's almost to me like that uh, Peter and the Wolf situation (laughs) where they have like they slowly build up the entire orchestra from one thing. And I have not done my due diligence here. I don't sure if any of those actual instruments are uh, tied to certain performers or certain characters. But I could see someone playing around with that if they wanted to, that these are (laughs) all these elements of the Follies all coming back in together. But I don't know if there's anything else you want to add into that at all. Well, you know, I don't think that there's specific instruments associated with specific characters in this show. You know, that is something that Sondheim thought about doing for A Little Night Music, but they they sort of chose against it, except for Henrik, who played the uh, cello. That is something that composers have done in the past. Um, Sondheim talks briefly about one song, and I think, uh, I can't remember, it's a song in this show, and he, he talks about, like, the value of an orchestrator, and he says, you know, 
there's this one song where whenever I think it's uh, I think it's Phyllis and she, it's like wherever she's talking about her husband, it goes to cold woodwinds mm. and wherever she's talking about herself, it goes to the warm strings. So that's that's a great example of what an orchestrator adds in terms of like telling the story through the, yeah. the sound palette that they choose. Um, OK, in terms of your sort of play by play of the uh, of the overture. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it is. The things that I would add to that are just that like that that's slow waltz that happens after the first two big chords you know it has a little bit of the sound of um the opening of stavisky with those very high strings uh like ghostly strings and so right at the beginning you get this sense of like a phantasm in the background and of course that's like a major motif throughout the show Uh, just to fill that in, uh, Stavisky is a movie that Sondheim wrote the score for. Right, and that Tunic orchestrated. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I hear a little bit of that. And then, yeah, I mean, I think it's like, I think that oboe does play the melody at one point and soprano sax also plays it. And then it sort of builds and builds and builds until you have this grand, lush, full orchestration. I mean, I think that there was like uh, 24 or 28 players in the pit for the uh, original Broadway version of this. And that's one of the things that made it so expensive. But what Jonathan Tunick talks about in terms of orchestrating this is, he said it had to sound like not what the old Broadway uh, orchestra sounded like. It had to sound like what you remember them having mm. sounded like. You know, it had to be like the apotheosis of, of what you remembered from like your childhood of seeing like these grand productions you know, with like feathers and costumes and, you know, big, huge, um, you know, it's the Loveland thing, you know, these yeah. big sets and everything, sparkles and everything. So the, the sound of the music had to capture that. And I just think he nails it, just absolutely gets it exactly right. Yeah, it, it's so fascinating to see how our memories play tricks on us. This is what will often happen uh, when I think back to like old video games, especially like in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, when they were trying to do three 3D animation. And you're like, yeah, it was like beautiful. It was like a Pixar movie. And then you go back to it now. I'm like, ooh, those are not good. <laughs> those are very ugly, in fact. But you, that, that memory yeah, that you, you know, hold I on to, it like looks great. It made me think of something else. Like I love um, Ina Garten, the uh, <laughs> the barefoot Contessa, right? The, the yeah. Television uh, chef, cook. You know, when she's making a recipe, she says, "I don't want this to taste like you know the brownies that you had when you were four years old. I want it to taste like how you remember them tasting." Mm -hmm. And it's you know, and so so like she pumps up like you know all the sugar and the chocolate and she, like adds all of this you know like subtle notes and flavors in there so that it's just <laughs> so evocative and it's like yeah i mean you probably when you were four years old you probably had like the 
Sara Lee out of the box or whatever, yeah, you know, yeah, but yeah. like it tasted like the best thing you had ever had because you didn't know any better. Yeah, I want diabetes in a nine by six pan. And that's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> of course, then this uh, prologue comes to an end and we have Wiseman kind of come up and like introduce us to the show and like bring on the girls. So this brings us the character of Roscoe, who only shows up again, I really feel, in the Loveland sequence. But uh, regardless, in the three versions that we're talking about, he is portrayed by Michael Bartlett in the original Broadway cast, Paul Bentley in the 1987 London version, and then Bruce Graham in the 2017 National Theatre version. Now, before we jump into the lyrics of Beautiful Girls, I think we should just have a brief conversation about Bring On The Girls, which is what the original opening song was supposed to be. Kind of fit the same mood. It's like bringing on these girls, introducing us to the concept of the Follies from, you know, the 19 teens all the way up to like the 19, I think, 50s is, is the, the widespread that they have on stage. And uh, according to Sondheim, really the only reason is that Michael Bennett, the co-director, just wanted a different song, just wanted a new song because... Bring On The Girls had been written in 1966. And he says, I want something that was written right now. And so Sondheim did. Although I think Sondheim still prefers Bring On The Girls, just reading between the lines of what he writes in the book. Bring on the girls, beautiful girls, the tender gender. Bring on the girls, doing what girls can do. They'll fool you, deceive you, no matter how they grieve you. You just must love those beautiful girls. Beautiful girls. Yeah, I think that they're both very good songs. Um, and I think that they both capture the thing that Sondheim is trying to capture. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't see any reason why you... <laughs> would yeah. write this new song. I mean, I, I don't know. So one of the things that he was doing on this Bring on the Girl song that was cut is that he loved this one rhyme that he had written. And uh, I want to get your thoughts on this, Well, which is he had this private joke because he loved Sheldon Harnick so much. And there was this show called The Body Beautiful and a song in it called Gloria in which Harnick rhymed feminine with a cup of tea with cream or lemon in. Right. <laughs> uh, so a rhyme apparently that Seinheim envied so much. Uh, he then goes through about how it's not a quite a complete rhyme because the O and lemon is not the exactly the same way as the I and feminine does, but whatever. He says like he still really liked this rhyme. So in this song that he wrote, I'll do, I'm just going to read the entire stanza here, which is, Painters have tried with all of their skill to catch the grace of the feminine. Form and face poets have tried, but try as they will, they waste their time painting them in internal rhyme. Who can capture the charm sublime of nature's masterpieces? So if you didn't catch that, he rhymes feminine with them in in. Internal rhyme is the next line. So it was his like little in-joke about using an internal rhyme to rhyme feminine correctly. Um, how do you like that? Oh, you know, Sondheim, <laughs> you clever boy. Yeah, <laughs> you right. Know, is there to say. And for anybody who doesn't know, I guess it's probably worth saying that Sheldon Harnick is is a great American lyricist, um, most famously of Tiddler on the Roof. Right, yeah, yeah. Who I, um, I should have checked this out. I think might still be alive, actually. Yeah, yeah, too. I'm looking at it right now. He's 90. 
five. So I guess he's five years older than Sondheim, and yeah. he's still he's still kicking. Good for yeah. him. Yeah, that's great. And I guess as long as you're saying that, the one thing that I forgot to say about the overture is that's also the melody comes from another cut song from this show. That's um, true. Yeah. All things bright and beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that that's how they decided to open the show as a prologue with music that doesn't really get included in the rest of the show, which is not normally what uh, you do in a prologue slash overture. Right, it's a ghost from the from the score. Ah, yeah, I like that. I like that idea. It's all meant to be. Lastly, Beautiful Girls, the new song that Sondheim wrote then, what he was trying to do was definitely mimic Irving Berlin. Uh, so this is a very general question uh, to you, Will, but what do you know about Irving Berlin? Well, Irving Berlin, I think, was mostly a self-taught um, composer and lyricist. You know, they say that he could only play piano in like one key. <laughs> he was an E major. <laughs> right. um, and uh, like, you know, I think that he might not even have known how to read music, although that, that just seems so. But you, know, you, you never know what's myth and what's, what's reality. Irving, for, I mean, he's, he's amazing. He's one of the greats. I mean, there's, there can be no denying that. I mean, listen to the score of Annie Get Your Gun. Mm -hmm. That is a hell of a score. You know, I mean, so Irving Berlin helped, gave us... Helped write White Christmas, too, which gets played yeah. literally every, every year. Yeah, I mean, he wrote that. He, I think he wrote, um, he wrote one of those great uh, United States patriotic yeah. songs. Not the one I thought, actually, when I was doing my research. But yes, he wrote a bunch of wartime songs for World War II. I mean, I, right. I love him just because I'm a big Mel Brooks fan, too, for his movies. Uh, Putting on the Ritz is a, is a Irving Berlin song as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, Easter Parade. We, we yeah. were recording this shortly after Easter. Putting on the Ritz, cheek to cheek. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the greatest of all time. There can be no doubt about that. I mean, this is what Sondheim actually says uh, in his book about Irving Berlin. He says that he is deceptively, uh, there's deceptive simplicity within Irving Berlin. Uh, so specifically, Berlin is a lyricist whose work I appreciate more and more the older I get. His lyrics appear to be simple, but simplicity is a complicated matter, as well as being hard to achieve without a quick slide from simple to simplistic. And Berlin's simplicity is deceptive. I, I think he said, writes later here too, is that it's not necessarily that Irving Berlin is like one of his favorite composers. It's more that like, oh, I really appreciate what he's doing because he does it so well. Uh, for, for me, my analogy that I use as a film fan is my relationship with David Lynch, where I respect him, but don't necessarily like love everything that he's done. But I respect him as an artist. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's one, I, I, one thing that I read about. Um, so Irving Berlin, he died at the age of 101. Yeah, he, he lasted. Um, in, in 1989. Yeah. I know. And yet he and Sondheim never met. That's so wild. Isn't that kind of crazy? And I'm actually, I, I'm, I pulled up his uh, Wikipedia right now. I was, I was off. Apparently, he could only play uh, piano in the key of F sharp. There we go. F sharp. So, <laughs> well, let, let the record state and don't send any letters. We got it right here eventually. <laughs> Specifically, here's what I'm going to do. This is, uh, I want to just play a song here so you can get an understanding of what Sondheim is trying to mimic here a little bit. So, this is Irving Berlin's song, A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody. A song by Don Amici. They go together like sunny weather, goes with the month of May. I've studied girls and music, so I'm qualified to say, oh. Like a melody 
that horn. Uh, let's get into some of these lyrics of beautiful girls here then. So it starts off with Roscoe singing, Hats off, here they come, those beautiful girls. That's what you've been waiting for. Nature never fashioned a flower so fair. No rose can compare. Nothing respectable, half so delectable. Cheer them in their glory, diamonds and pearls, dazzling jewels by the score. This is what beauty can be. Beauty celestial, the best you'll agree. All for you, these beautiful girls. Will, is there anything that jumps out at you from the from those first four stanzas? Yeah, it's so evocative. I mean, it just puts you in like 1921. You know, I mean, it's like it's it, or even earlier. I mean, it's like you just imagine the grand ballroom of the Titanic. You know, yeah, when you're here, yeah. and like and like hats off. You know, I mean, right? I mean, so you're you're at a time when people are wearing hats. You know, does anyone still wear a hat? Well, yeah, 1920. <laughs> in 1920s, they do. Did. Yeah. And, you know, the gentleman, okay, hats off, gentlemen, the show's about to start. You know, some, that line, nature never fashioned a, fa- a flower so fair. Mm-hmm. A lot fashioned of Fs, a right? flower so fair. All of that alliteration. And also just this, you know, I guess you would say slightly paternalistic, you know, evocation of women as fair flowers. Right. I mean, that's very in the, you know. That in that style, is, right, uh, of early yeah, 1900s. Yeah, maybe a little older than the 20s. Like, maybe that's like the 1900, like, turn of the century, you know. I mean, that's like the Sid Romberg um, kind of era. Uh, nothing respectable half so delectable i mean that that's on time i think yeah well that's also a very uh, a, a call well a call for it because he'll use that exact same phrase into the woods again yes right i was i knew that it was jogging my memory somehow but i couldn't put it there the beauty celestial the best you'll agree sondheim wrote that there was like some uh, critic Yes. Who thought that uh, instead of saying best, you'll agree. Yeah, let, that, let, let's that talk about said, this because this is like <laughs> angry Sondheim. So it's kind of funny to read this in his book. So uh, he names her uh, Arlene Croce uh, was enraged about folly. She did not like it whatsoever. And it basically started right from the very beginning because of that line where he says beauty celestial, the best you'll agree. She misheard that. She thought that it said, uh, let me read it here. She called it disgusting because it compared middle-aged ladies to beast uh, because she thought it read beauty celestial, the best, the, the, sorry, the bestial agree. So the beasts will agree with the fact that they're beautiful and sort of thing. (laughs) 
basically at the very end he says mrs miss croce's confusion makes no sense at all if the ladies are bestial what are they agreeing on nevertheless whether it can be attributed to willful bitchery or natural stupidity on her part her tirade cautioned me to be careful about aural ambiguities so that's what yeah, he wrote i mean it's very strange because like that you would have to have a very posh pronunciation of bestial to say bestial yeah you know for one thing almost sounds like Sondheim made up that story. I mean, Arlene Croce, that's just like too perfect a name for like a scolding old ninny of a, of a critic, but okay. <laughs> right. Wendell Pendleton. Yes. It's like an yeah, old, old right. guy. <laughs> what, what I actually appreciate about this story, whether it's fake or not, uh, is that it, it is true that, um, Sondheim, I feel does do that. The more I thought about this, like, yeah, there's very few lyrics where, I've misheard it as being something else in his in his shows, which will sometimes happen actually in other productions or composers. Definitely pop music. It happens to me literally all the time where certain mm-hmm. phrases back to back, my head points to something else. Um, and I think something really tries his best not to try and be like, this could sound like a different interpretation of this. And I don't want that to be there. Well, I think that, in, you know, it, it, if you compare like Sondheim to pop, you know, in pop, like the, the words could be anything, mm-hmm. you know, they're usually just sort of fragments of a scratch of an idea. Sure, and, yeah. you know, th- that has its own charm to it. I mean, that's that's evocative in its way. And, you know, oftentimes the words are just you know, they, they, they just hang on the tune on the hook, you know, in a singable kind of a way. But in Sondheim, like this, the, the, the songs are really saying something. So it's just like the context also helps remove any doubt about what word is being said because like there's such a logic to it moving on here then we uh, have roscoe continue on now i will say these next two stanzas uh do not appear on the original broadway cast and as you'll probably get tired of hearing me say throughout this entire season uh sondheim is not a big fan of the original broadway cast because they cut it up so much they would not allow him to have a double lp so they had to cram everything onto one, which means certain songs are missing and certain songs are like cut up or at least like remove middle portions of it for kind of random reasons. But regardless, this is what he says. This is what he sings. Careful. Here's the home of beautiful girls where your reason is undone. Beauty can't be hindered from taking its toll. You may lose control. Face with these lies. what man can moralize? Why do you think they cut that uh, those two out? Do you think? Well, mm, just for time. I mean, like it's a, the score has something like what twenty two full uh, numbers. Yeah, I in think it? it's twenty two like, full songs. 20, yes, yeah, yeah. Like that's almost twice as much as like a normal musical. Now, why? They, I mean, you know, this is already a really expensive show, so I guess that maybe they just didn't want to put the money into you know putting even more money into doing the full recording. I mean, if you've got to start cutting stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, I can understand why it's like, okay, we got the idea of this song already. You know, everything else is just more. I mean, it's great, but 
you know. What I find fascinating is just the rhyme scheme that's going on in these, right? Because the first little section, careful, here's the home of beautiful girls where your reason is undone. So there's no there's no rhymes there, but that last undone will eventually get rhymed in the third stanza that we haven't read yet. But even in the the first part that we already read, same thing happens, right? Hats off. Here they come, those beautiful girls. That's what you've been waiting for. Four does not rhyme again until dazzling jewels by the score in the the third stanza. And yet in between those, we're doing internal rhymes because we're doing like, so fair and compare are are rhyming, respectable, delectable are are rhyming. And then he comes all the way back uh, finally to, to rhyme score with four. I don't know. How do you feel about this intricacy that he's introducing right here at the very beginning? You know, it's, it's somebody who's able to work at the micro and the macro level and just make it sound so natural and make it sound like, also make it sound like it's, you know, authentic to this period where, you know, they, I mean, they were sort of inventing the rules at this time. Um, so the fact that he could bring all of that together is just amazing well here's something that's uh, hilarious that i'm going to admit to uh is that will and i had to do some googling beforehand <laughs> <laughs> to to answer a question i had because i was looking in the wrong place they they referenced this faced with these lies, what man can moralize now within context like i get what they're saying like this the, these people are so beautiful that you forget your morality at the door right you're drawn into them uh sort of thing so i get that uh but i was like who's lorelei I wonder who Lorelai is. I thought it was from the Bible. Apparently, it's not at all. This is right from the mythology of Lorelai. Lorelai is actually a huge rocky cliff about 120 meters above the level of the water in Germany. It's placed on the left bank of the Rhine and inspired one of the most popular legends in Germany. But you were also saying, well, that this actually has a link to to another famous musician and composer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So one. So like, the, I guess the Lorelei text, um, you know, turned into poetry by a few different people. But uh, yeah, like one of the things that I found in 1801, the German author Clemens Prentano began the legend of the woman of uh, Lorelei with his ballad zu Bacharach am Rheine. And um, Clemens Brentano, yeah, uh, he was the I believe he was the husband of one of Beethoven's girlfriends. Um, Anthony Brentano. So. Well, here's how we finish off the song here then. Uh, Roscoe goes, Caution on your guard with beautiful girls, flawless charmers, everyone. This is how Samson was shorn, each in her style a Delilah reborn, each a gem, a beautiful diadem of beautiful welcome them, these beautiful girls. Every version of Roscoe like really belts out that last girls, which is always fun to hear. How about this one? I I really I will show my cards here. I love how this song ends. It this all fits so nicely together. It's it's great. I mean, you know, and, and and it's funny that he keeps putting in these allusions to these sort of mythical 
characters, you know, the Lorelei's and that he's able to <laughs> rhyme that with moralize is fantastic. <laughs> That's right. And then this is how Samson was shorn. You know, we all know the story of Samson right. um, having his hair cut by by Delilah and losing all of his power. So Delilah's like the femme fatale, you know, this terrible witch woman. Uh, <laughs> and and so basically what he's saying is like, you know, these women in this show are so bewitching that you better beware. You know, beauty can't be hindered from taking its toll. You may lose control. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's problematic in a thousand ways. And yet it's like, so charming also just, you know, it's quaint. Yeah. And it does fit in with, again, what we've kind of been discussing here is that this feels like it was a song that was sung in the 1930s follies. Like it just feels like, yeah, this is probably how they introduced the show all the time. And this is, we saw them coming down from the staircase, with the huge peacock feathers on or something like that. It, it feels that grand and ornate uh, at the same time. Yeah. It's funny how it's sort of like, it's on the knife's edge in a way. I mean, it's all very playful. The stuff about like the Lorelei's and, and, and Delilah, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not really saying that like, you know, these women are going to ruin your lives. Because they're also, don't forget, flare fa- fair flowers mm-hmm. and gems in a diadem, you know, and it's just sort of hinting at, you know, their, their, um, the, the danger that lies beneath, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's tongue in cheek and, um, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's with a, it's, it's with a wink of the eye, right? Like it's with you, a wink of the eye. Yeah. It, it feels thing. very much like a, like a circus barker or something like that. Right. <laughs> Which is like, come and see the amazing blah, blah, blah. Don't get too close kids. Or like, you know, that sort of thing where you're, you're enticing people because of the little bit of danger that happens to be there at the same time when there's probably no danger at all, but still the, if you feel like there's danger, you want to kind of go towards it a little bit more. Yes. Yes. It's titillating. Oh, uh, last note. I'm just, I, I had written down here too. Uh, if anyone is uh, unsure of the word diadem, cause I don't think that's really used anymore. Uh, basically that means crown. It's a crown. So <laughs> a diadem of beautiful, they have just a beautiful crown on. Um, but musically, was there anything that you wanted to point out about what's happening in this beautiful girl song? You know, just as the lyrics are evocative of the era, so is the music. You know, this is mm-hmm. the first of the real pastiche numbers. And, you know, I mean, a, a pastiche, I, I guess it's worth sort of defining, is is writing something in uh, an older style. And that's what this is. So, yeah, the music has that. Um, you know, I mean, I, it, and it's it's all underscored by the, the orchestration, uh, the way that it's put together. It, it has that sound of like a society ballroom orchestra. Right. You yeah. know, it's, it's both lush and very lightly jazzy. But, you know, we're not quite there yet. It's just perfect. Great. So out of all of the ones that I mentioned uh, of the different versions of Follies, or maybe there's a different one. Do you have a favorite recording of the of either the prologue or Beautiful Girls? Yeah, my favorite recording of the whole show is um, is it's actually a, uh, one that you haven't mentioned yet. It's uh, it's the 1988. It's billed as the complete recording, and uh, it's it's also called the New Jersey recording. Sondheim is the executive producer. Um, it's done with the full orchestrations. It ha- includes a lot of the um, the cut material. I think actually it includes all of the cut material. Um, Jonathan Tunick himself is conducting, which is rare because mm. you know usually Paul Gemignani does uh, conducts and music directs the shows. In as much as there is an authoritative recording, like from the musical perspective, I think it has to be that one. And and I think the performances are just magnificent um including who's, who's including singing opening numbers the singer of beautiful girls is vahan khan zadian who oh, was an opera it. singer love it yeah 
Um, I will uh, message you over that name. Okay, so I'll tell you some of the other people who are on it. Um, Ann Miller sings I'm uh, Still Here. Phyllis Newman sings Who's That Woman? Um, Donna McKechnie sings In Body's Eyes. Um, Kay Ballard sings Broadway Baby. And, uh, you know, lots of other... Oh, I see here. Yeah, okay. I was, I was looking at, uh, on Wikipedia, they have uh, like a huge list of every production. And I was just trying to figure out which one was which. Uh, they apparently call that the Paper Mill Playhouse version, too, is another one that they call. Uh, mm-hmm. Regardless, that's great. Well, uh, stay tuned because we're going to be doing a little bit of a bumper, a little bonus thing about uh, something that we wanted to bring up from company. But until that point, well, h- how can people find you online if they want to follow you? Um, I'm always Will C. White, W-I-L-L-C-W-H-I-T-E on everything. So on Twitter, on Instagram, and that's my website too, willcwhite.com. Cool. Thank you once again. My pleasure. Always, always a great time on here, Kyle. Thank you so much for listening. As I mentioned at the beginning, you can send emails to puttingittogetherpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow Sondheim Podcast on Twitter and on Instagram. And you can support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash puttingittogetherpodcast. Thank you to the Alberta Podcast Network, to ATB, and to Pod Power this week. Putting It Together is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can get podcasts from. Consider subscribing so that you never miss an episode. Next week, we'll be discussing the song, Don't Look At Me. Why am I here? This is crazy. As always, a big thanks to the great Chris Taniguchi who designed the podcast artwork, and to Nick Driscoll for composing our theme music. Well, we've reached the end of our episode. Yes, I know. Goodbye for now. Well, Will, we're here in, I guess we'll call this the after dark. Um, <laughs> what uh, you you had wanted to bring up something that was mentioned in company that you wanted to kind of elaborate on. Well, one of your great themes that I think went throughout the whole season and one that I agree with entirely. Well, my, my soapbox I got on, on yeah, all your the time. Soapbox, yeah. I mean, it, it's just that like, you know, you point out that now we have these two different sets of lyrics in terms of, you know, there's the, the quote unquote, the man lyrics the original ones and then there's the right. women lyrics from from the new london version and you said you know i think that we should really have room for a bye bobby a bye um to uh you know to, to, to let's explore. get that trending worldwide everyone yeah. hashtag bye hashtag i i mean i i totally agree i think that you should be able to have a bye bobby but i, I just think at this point like you know sondheim really didn't want bobby to be gay even though I think the lady doth protest too much. Um, he's, he always said Bobby's not gay. You know, that that had such a different meaning back then in 1970. It, it, it meant all of this stuff about like yeah. the closet and coming to terms with yourself and, you know, that whole culture of the time. And I, I you know, think also, too, like there's the entire thought of like the, the, the suffering homosexual, right? Like you can't do a story of a homosexual without them being like either dying of AIDS or like being grief stricken or like, you know, that sort of thing. So I can kind of right. I mean, a little bit understand. But, like, but this is definitely the era of the boys in the band, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so like, you know, I get it. I, 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 I get it to after a fashion, but like, you know, now, like if you're doing contemporary sort of retellings of this, um, you know, like the London production is, um, then like I think that anybody of any gender and any sexuality at this point should be able to play Bobby. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, you know, you, you don't have all the weight of the repressed homosexual. If you do a gay Bobby, like it can still just be about the themes of, 
love and marriage and relationships. But you have these different sets of lyrics. So why can't, you know, why can't um, male Bobby sing like the quote unquote women lyrics from the revival? And why can't a woman sing, you know, the the male lyrics from the from the original? I I think it's so true because a person or a pan person like seeing some mix of of all of them. I I think it's so true in, in, in that because of how company is structured, like the the Bobby character, as you kept mentioning, is the cipher for whatever the audience member wants them to be like he's not. Or she is not so rigid as being like, you can only play it this one way because you've seen company being performed and interpreted in multiple different ways. So, I, I, yeah, I think that the sexuality of the performer or of, of Bobby themselves, uh, I would say is important. But I think that just makes the, the show more culturally rich because you can you can play around with that as much as you want to. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, yeah, like if it would bring some new flavor to the, you know, to a new production to like, you know, have it be okay, a man singing about a man or something. You know, it's not like the original, like, we just have to not think of, you know, a man and woman version being the neutral version, you know, that has its own, like, hang ups and stuff. Um, I guess we do need like, maybe we need a third version, you know, for the non binary. Um, yeah, that's love true. interests or right. the non-binary Bobby, um, which could be an interesting challenge. I don't know that if someone would, would go for that. Maybe not. <laughs> but that would be an interesting take of seeing how that would actually all work uh, together. Yeah. But, oh, something to think about. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Kyle.